Hello, I'm Pauline Jennings. Welcome to Musician Talk. My guest today is Clark Onisorg. Clark has been playing violin in orchestras since he was a child, including at St. Olaf as a student and for many years in the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra, of which he is also the council president. With his psych degrees, he's taught students at a handful of colleges, including Carleton and St. Olaf. Clark is passionate about his music and digs in to get things done for the CVRO. It's time to get some details. It's time to talk with Clark Onasor. Right. It's, this is a really great time to have you on the show, Clark, because um, the CVRO has a concert coming up September 15th uh, at 7 o'clock at Odd Fellows Park, and it is a free concert. So I thought this was a really great time to check in with you and check in with CVRO. But before we do that, I would like you to take us on a little journey, uh, your musical journey, and when you started playing, and did you start on violin? Yeah, I started on the violin in, I think, 1966, maybe 67. Um, there was a new young graduate from Indiana University, Mark Bjork, who's also, a, a, his, he grew up here, and his dad was a well-known historian at St. Olaf. Mm. And um, um, Mark had just gotten out of graduate school, and my mom was uh, pretty well connected with the musical uh, community in Minneapolis. And so somebody said, you know, why don't you try uh, the Suzuki method and why don't you get your kids started? So um, I was his first student, which we laugh about every time I see him. And because uh, <laughs> I, still, I still call him Mr. Bjork, even though, you know. Right, right. That was a long time ago. And <laughs> we have, we've both aged considerably since then. But um it's yes. like you became contemporaries. He, long right. ago, he was way older, and now you're like the same age. How that happens as you age. Lots of things in life are a log function. There that you go. The, yes, the initial yes, yes. speed up is or is steep, and then you kind of hopefully settle in for the long run. Right, right. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, that's all right. Uh, so I played through high school and um, played with the Greater Twin Cities Youth Symphonies under a really – couple of really nice people and um uh, of course they toured europe the year after i graduated so that's that was par for the oh, course but shoot. um i went to saint olaf and played in the orchestra there my first year and then played in the philharmonia uh for a couple of years afterwards because uh the time commitment of the orchestra was just more than i was uh, willing to put out sure um and then yeah, sort of slacked off for a few years when I uh, uh, worked and then went to graduate school and then came back to, well, I came back to teach at Carleton here. And um, some folks, one way or the other, got in touch with me and I uh, signed on and then it was just a lot of fun, so I've kept doing it. With CVRO, you mean? Yeah. And so how many years ago was that? I really don't know. I think it was probably, oh, at least, it might be 15 years. Got it. Got it. Um, 
So let's go back to when you first started. How old were you in 1966? Six. Wow. So you were young. Right. And, um, <clears throat> and so this new, the Suzuki method was new at the time. Right. And you, somewhere I saw that you were like the first Suzuki student, let's say that 10 times fast, in uh, Minnesota. And so it was so. that new. It was yeah. that new. I mean, even if you weren't the very first, you were one of the first. Right. Yeah. No, the Star Tribune did an article about me and my mom and Paul or and Mark in, uh, you know, after I had just started with, you know, various dumb quotes like Clark used to just like to play baseball and now he likes to play the violin too, even though I was, you know, <laughs> scratching away in hideous fashion, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so we're going to talk more about the Suzuki method later as it relates to your own teaching. But take me back to when you first started learning. What did you? What were you first taught on the violin? Well, Do you remember. Sure. Oh, the one of the cool things about the Suzuki method. So, so sorry, I'm dipping into the method here. All right, that's fine. Jumping the jumping the tracks. That's all right. Um, is that there's a, a, the same repertoire is played by everybody, and it's a it's a lovely selection of things that you know start very simple with "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," mm-hmm. and then I believe there are six or seven variations of that that, in which the rhythm and uh, other aspects of the song are altered or changed, and. Um, Oh, then you play things like Dear Aunt Rhody and uh, Brahms waltzes and things like that and in increasing difficulty as you move through it. And part of Suzuki's rather incredible insight was that most normally developing kids develop considerable language fluency by the time they're three years old or so. Right, right. Because they're in an environment where it's supported and everybody else is speaking the same tongue. Right. And... um so the the method had uh, sort of two features. We'd have a – well, actually back then, people really used to pay attention to Suzuki's insight. And so it was typical for the primary caregiver, which was usually the mom, to start playing the violin. She would start taking lessons approximately oh. six months before the kid. So the kid is hearing it. It's in the house. The mom's got the ability to – because presumably she's learned a few things by the time the kid sure. starts. And then – it was typical for – my mom is the one who did that in our family. She would come to lessons weekly, uh-huh. you know, so that she could keep an eye on what was going on. And the teacher could tell her, you know, what things needed to be worked on or so forth. And then – And uh, she continued to take lessons My mom did of- only for a year or two. Okay. <clears throat> she, was, she was busy. She was – But that's a commitment, a year or two. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Well, she was a – she had been a pianist and a church oh, organist okay. and Got all it. sorts of stuff. So she was – solid with music got it and then the other feature of it was that we would have a weekly group lesson which everyone who was in the you know the studying under a particular teacher would be asked to come those were saturday afternoon and then uh the most advanced student would play what they were playing and then they would step down just like a, a quiz show in reverse, step down through the levels of competence with each additional kid stepping up when they came to a piece that they knew. So that you'd start out with one kid playing or two kids playing, and then by the time it moved down through everybody, all the kids were playing, and we'd you know finish up with Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and uh, and everybody could handle that, right? So it was this sort of 
his idea was to create this supportive instructional environment where, um, you know, there's both a, a big social component, sure. not like it was a cult or anything, but a big, <laughs> a big social component. <laughs> the where The musician <clears throat> cult of Suzuki. You'd, right. <clears throat> you'd watch the older kids and then you'd step in and play. And uh, uh, so it was, it was very nice that way. And how did you feel um, uh, about you had a lesson every week and a group lesson every week? Right. And did well, how did you feel about that at six, seven, eight? Well, you... it was just fine. I wasn't doing anything else particularly constructive. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't. And it, but that's obviously a big thing that interferes with kids' musical education is that as you get into junior high, yeah, there there are different attitudes about playing music, and then you've got sports and schoolwork and all sorts of other stuff that comes in. Right. Right. Um, and I imagine being in those group settings, y- y- you looked up to the older and better musicians, and so there was some motivation there, too. Unfortunately, there, as the years went on, they got to be more and more better musicians. Because um, <laughs> there, were, there were people that were, you know, much more avid about playing than I was. Sure. And um, so uh, are you up for a funny story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Please. So one of my pals from... The Suzuki method was a guy named Paul Huppert who, well, when he was 12 years old, he soloed with the Minnesota Orchestra playing oh the Mendelssohn Concerto. Oh so he and I started about the same time. <laughs> and uh, my mom used to laugh that they were, she and Mrs. Huppert were sitting at a group lesson. And Mrs. Huppert says to her something along the lines of, how's practicing going with Clark? Um, <laughs> and my mom goes, well, you know, we've... It's it's kind of a struggle. We've agreed that he'll practice thirty minutes a day, and uh, you know I have to supervise him and all that sort of stuff. And Mrs. Albert goes, "Oh, we've got the opposite problem with Paul. We told him he can only practice for three hours a day, and then we're just taking that violin away from him." And <laughs> you know, he, he had a lot of laughs about that over the years. Well, that's what gets you to soloing at twelve, right? right. <clears throat> oh, he was he was spectacular too. Well, it's um, well, so you didn't love practicing. Do you remember? I, do you remember oh, yeah, how no. you felt about it? <clears throat> yeah, I felt like cheating the timer. Uh, you know, when we had an egg timer that sort of recorded, and every once in a while, I'd feel like I could just cut five minutes off there too. Got it. But um, you kept going, even though you didn't like practicing. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that I didn't like practicing. It's just that uh, it's something that's. It's one reason that I've stuck with the orchestra, and that is. I like playing with other people oh. and the, uh, you know, the individual drilling over the difficult parts of pieces was not something that just naturally appealed to me. Sure. It's a little bit like doing sit-ups or, or whatever else. You right. know, you know it's to, good for you, but you got to yeah. just get through it. <clears throat> so did, were there, uh, as well as these songs that you were learning um, in the Suzuki method, do you do, you do scales? Do you, no, there are a couple of things that, um, so, you know, who I'll folks I'll just call traditional instructors didn't care for with the Suzuki method. And one of those was, you know, it's, it's Suzuki's philosophy that that learning an instrument should be like learning a language, which he called the mother tongue uh, method, among other things, uh, meant that we didn't typically start reading music until we were in about book four, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so it's all by ear. Right. Cool. Playing by ear. And then, so traditional people reacted kind of strongly against that. Right. And as the years have gone by, Suzuki instructors have 
altered that practice quite a bit. Okay. But it's, I assume that you studied some foreign language in junior high and high school. And, yep. you know, yep. if, if it's like German, you memorized Durch ohne Gegenführung or Alles außer bei mit Nachzeit von zu. Okay, what does that mean? Oh, those are just different kinds <laughs> of verbs. The reason I ask is because there was a line that Steve always says that Kenny, that he learned, hello, in German, and it has something about your 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 arches and your feet falling. And I just was mm. wondering if that was that because it's <laughs> probably starts with dying. <laughs> probably, uh, probably. Anyway, um, similarly. Working on scales was not something that was a big part of the method because that's a that's a technical thing. It's it's like practicing Latin conjugations. Yeah, it doesn't do much for you in your typical conversational day. It gives you an intellectual appreciation for how right. things work. And of course, as you get older, scales become more and more useful because you learn to play particular patterns of things. But right. um, you know, it's, I, I gathered, well, as soon as I started studying German in junior high school, that uh, Suzuki was completely right about the fact that an intellective understanding of grammar is not something that's even consciously available to the speakers of a language. Right. Right. You can hear what is or is not a, a correct conjugation or, you know, or application of possessives or things like that in in your speech, if, or as particularly if you hear it from others. But it's not really like you're consulting a, a grammar table. No, and certainly when you're learning the language when you're two years old, you're, you're not, right? Right. right. Wow, so yeah, in yeah. a sense, the Suzuki method is useful at preparing um, people for a conversation, <laughs> a musical conversation, rather than decoding something that comes off a... Uh, Right. comes off a sheet of printed music. And I got to believe that training the ear first before you start even learning the notes is so valuable because particularly as you, well, I guess at any stage of being a musician, having that ear for intonation and, and just to know where you're going and what the other people around you are doing is so valuable. It's just, it, if you have a good ear, if you develop a good ear, it, you're leaps and bound, bounds ahead of the people that don't, mm -hmm. I think. Well, and... You know, I'll say this. Uh, I'm certainly nowhere near as good a sight reader as many of the people in the orchestra. Never was in um, – it's, it's just not my natural way of encountering music. Oh, mm -hmm. I'll mention that. That was another big feature of the Suzuki method, which I don't think Suzuki did for pecuniary reasons. But um, certainly these days it reminds me of uh, what a lot of people do, and that is – they had a set of recordings for all the pieces, which you were encouraged to play and listen to mm. in the house because that's how you learn it. Right. And so oh, sitting somewhere uh, among my stuff is a whole bunch of old records with uh, nice. nice performances. And one of the great features about it was uh, the repertoire that Suzuki had selected was really very nice. And it, it was you know, obviously ex exclusively Western. So mm -hmm. played Bach concertos and um, Mozart concertos and Vivaldi and other things like that that are actually fairly popular. Right. So you re um, could recognize them, I guess. Well, I yeah. And the, they just fit into the whole overall scheme. And so one thing I will say is that, a, you know, with every method that gets started, 
it's it's adjusted quite a bit over the years and then became so popular with a lot of people that all sorts of people teach oh you know what they call using the Suzuki method but and you know, they haven't gone off and studied in Matsumoto, and, right? You know, oh, right, but, right. But it's, you know, that's I think just the way Suzuki or anybody in the field would like it, and that is the idea. You know, that's you have a, a quote or two that I sent you. Um, they were big fans of the idea that music wasn't just something special for uh, elite kids, or go, yeah. but that it was a. a a natural talent and skill that could be well. Its phrase was nurtured by love. Was oh. the name of his original book, love uh, that. and uh, or I, th- I think is his first book. <laughs> okay, and then one more interesting thing about Suzuki. Uh, his family had had a oh, a fairly long running violin factory in Japan that was destroyed in the war. Mm. And so he was left without his, you know, planned course of action and so moved into teaching uh, as uh, as an alternative, a, a career wow. move. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing how these things work out. It's the, the loveliness that can come out of tragedy. Um, so I want to just ask you, you, you played with this youth orchestra. Did you play, play also in your middle school and high school? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's – Minneapolis in the 70s was kind of a ragtag school system in some ways. Okay. Um, and so uh, actually starting in junior high, I used to walk over to the high school with a friend and um, they had a little pickup orchestra there. You know, And usually, you know, the, the golden days of music – instruction had been fading away. We actually had an orchestra at Douglas grade school where I went to school and there was also a band. But by the time I got to junior high, there was no orchestra. Of course, there's plenty of band. And then the, the orchestra leaders or the people that would take on the orchestra were usually band instructors. Right. Um, and so anyway, I'd walk over there and we'd play for uh, 45 minutes or so and then walk back to the junior high. Hmm. And it always made me laugh because I had a nice old violin that had, mm. you know, come down in the family. And, my, you know, our junior high was sort of uh, along the lines of the Bronx Zoo in a lot of ways. It was right <laughs> when, uh, well, lot, let's just say a lot of stuff was going, was on, going on in on, 1974 right. and 1976 yep. in the cities. Yep. And, um, you know, there I was sticking my violin into a locker and, you know, going about my day and then walking back and forth with it. Uh, and nothing happened. No, nothing happened. Nice. Yeah, it nice. was it was good. And my parents were just I don't think it ever occurred to them to to worry about it. Right. Right. But um Yeah, nowadays you probably would have a rehearsal violin to, that you would carry around with you. The other one would stay <laughs> safely. You know, that's that's a little bit possible, but uh Okay, so I'm sorry to Mary Hakes and uh Dr. Wee and the rest of the pianists, but Violins are a little more idiosyncratic than some instruments, and so you probably wouldn't do that. Got or, it. You know, got it. You can't maybe if I had a Guarnerius a... or something, I would, you know, or a, a Strad or some kind of a right. super duper one. <laughs> and then you might not carry those around. Right. Well, we need to turn to the first song, and um, this is a piece with CVRO, and uh, it's called Ashokan. Is that how you say it? Ashokan. Oh, I'll say two things here. Yeah. yeah. Right in your notes, 
you say that the piece is me playing violin. Okay. It's not. It's it's Jay Unger, who was one of our special guests. Right. Are you playing in the orchestra? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I just wanted Understood. to make sure. That, clear. that people don't think yeah. you're the soloist. Okay. Yeah. Understood. No, can I Got say it. a couple of things about please that? Do, okay. Please do. Please do. I think it's Ashokan Farewell. Ashokan? Okay. And... Um, Jay Unger is a very groovy guy from the Bronx, I think, and uh, he's you know he's had a long and kind of storied career. He's a big star in it's not really bluegrass, it's not really jazz, mm. um, but uh, you may have if you watched the Ken Burns series on the Civil War, that was the theme music from it uh, okay. that they picked that particular piece. So it, it showed sounds up. very familiar. I mean, yeah. it's, it's very very familiar tune. Uh, and he's a, he's totally groovy, and uh, <laughs> his wife Molly Mason, uh, you know, when we when we brought them because we we invited them down, and oh, thanks! It reminds me to thank. I believe we wrote a grant with CMAC, the Southeast Minnesota nice. um, uh, Arts Commission, that you know funded a little bit better uh, payment than we could normally come up with ourselves. Because you invited them to be your guests. Players right. and he he him on violin and his wife Molly on guitar. Yeah, she okay. played. I believe she probably played bass with us. She's one of those giant musical talents that uh, you know plays piano, bass, guitar, right, right. whatever she wants to play. Exactly. And I I was familiar with her because I had grown up listening to uh, Prairie Home Companion fairly often, and she was in the house band there for Guys All Star Shoe Band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> many many years, uh, and so it was. It was very cool, fun. Yeah, and so this was. Uh, where, where did you? Where, where was this concert? I guess, and when uh, we had one concert because that was what we could afford, and we held it over at the uh, uh, Cannon Falls High School because they have fancy uh, audio equipment, and it's uh-huh. a very nice venue. And um, one of their band directors uh, plays horn with the orchestra, and um, so, I, you know, we'll probably talk more about this later, but Paul is this sort of giant figure in the musical community in the, um, well, the Cannon Valley region. Right. So he knows everybody from New Ulm and uh, St. Peter and New Prague. Oops. New it, Prague. Nova, pra- you know, Nova Praha. Yeah, That's also yeah. the, another way to say it, right? To, um, <laughs> I grew up there. You know, I'm just La- oh, did you? I did. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody says it. I, I actually corrected somebody the other day because it's <laughs> you, people will look at you. It's like you no, it's new praying. Right, exactly. Right. So you're talking about Paul Nemisto? Yeah, the conductor. So he knew right, and so he knew Jay and Molly, um, uh, and uh, brought them down. We had a, a really nice concert over there. That's great. Well, we're going to listen to the whole whole tune, the Ashkun Farewell. And uh, Clark Onsorg, my guest today, is playing in the orchestra that is supporting uh, the, the, the soloists, Jay Unger and Molly Mason. And here it is. Thank you. 
Okay, so that was obviously not a show could farewell. That was Copeland Medley. That is also CVRO, also the same concert, also the same um, soloist Jay Unger and Molly Mason. And um, but we're gonna we're gonna hear uh, Ashakan farewell right now with Jay and Molly playing. So you get a chance to hear that. Um, uh, with Jay and Molly, also with the CVRO. Um, and my guest today is violinist Clark Onasorg, who is a part of CVRO. So I'm sorry about that mistake. I, I pulled the wrong song to play, but I'm glad we played the Copeland piece because it's a lively, lively play- piece. It's good. It's, we, a lot of our concerts have that kind of fanfare opening. That's nice. Right, which is, a you know, orients the audience. It's like having a, a zippy appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> get, get ready for your uh, get ready for your meal. I like that, and we're going to talk about the upcoming uh, concert on September fifteenth at Oddfellows Park, free concert, in a, in a little bit. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit more about Suzuki, and we're going to start with this quote that you actually sent me. And first of all, is his name pronounced Shinichi or Shinichi? Shinichi, Shinichi. Okay, so here's the quote. Musical ability is not an inborn talent, but an ability which can be developed. Any child who is properly trained can develop musical ability, just as all children develop the ability to speak their mother tongue. The potential of every child is unlimited. And that's Shinichi Suzuki. I love that last line. Wow. Amazing. So what are your first thoughts? I mean, you sent me this, I guess maybe instead of first thoughts, because you've read this quote before why did you pick why was this one of the ones you, sh- you sent to me 
Well, because that's his basic philosophy is that, and of course, you know, like mathematical talent or verbal fluency or athletic talent, obviously there's a, a broad range in the population. But right. his observation that pretty much everybody becomes a highly facile user of their mother tongue, the right. language they're first exposed to and grow up, you know, using to communicate with the world, uh, that he saw no reason that music should be any different from that. Language is just as complicated. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, that's why I mentioned math because, well, there's a numerical side and an algorithmic side right. to math, just as there is grammar and syntax in, um, or semantics and syntax in any grammar. And similarly, there are production skills in in music and memory and uh, the repetition of patterns. And so it's they're very similar exercises. And, you know, one of the cute things is that um, very frequently uh, there, there's a strong correlation across time between the study of linguistics and the study of uh, music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's I'll, I'll just throw in this somewhat mean thought also, and that is... <laughs> Because we will talk eventually about uh, – I taught statistics for many years. Mm -hmm. And I was always kind of dismayed with mathematical education because the focus was on teaching you algorithms, teaching you particular methods to get in, to take a set of input and transform it into an output. Yep. And very few people – you know, one of the things I learned is that nobody remembers – or. I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of the folks that I would have in statistics in college would say, oh, yeah, I took calculus in high school and I learned to do those procedures, but I got no idea really what differentiation means or integration or uh, how it is that those things actually operate. Exactly. And that's learning. Exactly. You know, well, okay, here's another, because I'm kind of a, a, a big association guy. There are people who can cook and then there can people who can follow a recipe and <laughs> – you know, in some ways, reading music off the page is is a good way to accomplish taking the ingredients and turning them into a pie or something. But um, we all know when we get around somebody who uh, is cooking with flair that there's a, a, a set of skills and familiarities that are based on the the practice of the art rather than just following a method. A different kind of understanding. I mean, so... So when you think of um, math, and I wish you would start teaching the beauty of math. That would be the first thing you'd learn in elementary school I, and I where it is in I think my students nature. over the years learned a lot of that. I'm yeah, just that's kidding. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. I think maybe because you were using some of the Suzuki method, which we'll get to in a second. Back to this quote. I think that um, when I read it, what I and knowing just a little bit about Suzuki is what I love about this is this says any child, every child, and in this quote. And I think so much of what perhaps he was getting at is, like you said, music was maybe kept for the elite or you, only the rich kids um, can can take afford to take lessons. Only rich kids, I mean, can do it, can play. Only really well educated people can play. And I think what he's saying is, no, anybody and everybody can play, and they should be. Yeah, 
they should be. And it's a 1960s, you know, philosophy to vote. But he started in the in the mid 50s, I suppose. But um, yeah, there's an aspirational and very optimistic uh, approach there, and then also, you know, that big social consciousness piece that you right. just mentioned, and that is, it's not just for you know kids going to Blake or Breck private schools, and, right? Um, that uh, music is something that uh, should be and can rather easily be uh, acquired by anybody. And it's so great that here living in Northfield, we have oh. such an incredibly strong uh, music program, although there has been funding and some of it's been taken away. But um, but the kids start in elementary school. They, have, they can start in elementary school. That Anybody has the choice to do that. If they can't afford an instrument, one will be mm-hmm. found for them. Well, and <clears throat> now I'm, I'm playing a dangerous game here. Okay, uh, go but, to it. Controversy sure. on musician talk. We've had, over the years, we've had so much great participation from Carleton and St. Olaf faculty. Um, Mr. Beck from the uh, the much beloved long-term middle school band teacher yep. uh, plays with us a lot. Um, Mr. Wee, the uh, piano professor from St. Yep. Olaf and, you know. He's taught half the kids in town how to play the piano, or he and, and Theo, of course. Exactly. Um, there's, a, like you said, a, a very rich uh, collaboration here. Yeah. And there's a, a, a ton of stuff to, a ton of talent to uh, encourage uh, to participate. I think at, at the Guild, what I've heard so many times after shows that we've had is, oh man, the talent in this town. So. What a great place to be doing musician talk and to um, and to be able to play my music and do my music and all my musical things endeavors here. So um, that wasn't very controversial. I was waiting for some <laughs> dirt or something. <laughs> well, to... the controversial part is that if I start naming people, I'm going to forget somebody. Oh, you know, I see. I, okay, okay. I, well, I, I think you said like some, that all the time. I think we'll leave it at those names. I think just, so. Yes, yeah. because those were great ones. All right. We, since we're sitting here under okay. this statue of. Uh, if that's if that's Joseph Haywood. We're, this is it's a it's a statue of a cowboy in the corner of the KYM yeah. studio. But um, you know, one of the people who's uh, performed with us across time, and we've we've played uh, his uh, tribute to Haywood several times is Dan Coleman, who's a mm-hmm. talented composer from St. Olaf, and he he sure is. He has stepped in once in a while to guest conduct us, and um, love him. Oh. Such a swell guy. He's the uh, musical director for Sweet Charity, which go, which is a play at the Guild starting in uh, November 3rd. Yeah, love that guy. Sweet man, too, man. Well, and I'll just mention this. We're lucky enough once in a while. It's hard to, with the kids' schedules, but we've had a reasonable amount of participation from both Carleton and St. Olaf students across time. And oh, that's great. That's they're busy, but yeah. That's great. Um, so... I wanted. I do want to talk a little bit more about Suzuki, like like I said, and that's how I want to learn how you brought Suzuki because you told me you have Suzuki Suzuki oh. into your own teaching. Sure. Okay. All right? So, have either have you guys had statistics courses? Mm-hmm. Okay. So most people hate statistics. Most people are afraid of it. Most people think it's math heavy, and it's not math heavy at all. They're very simple. The hardest operation you carry out is taking a square root, um, which is easy to do with a calculator. Yeah. But in teaching statistics, what I wanted was for kids, and sorry, 
sorry, young students or whatever. Understood. I, I'm, you know. We're old enough, I think, to say kids still when they're 18, 19. Sure. <laughs> um, most of the formulas that you use for doing t-tests or sampling distributions or correlation and regression or uh, other statistical uh, applications are simple enough so that you can start by teaching what we always refer to as a conceptual formula, mm. and um, which is a thing that shows you step by step how it is that the mathematical operations you are doing results in the output that you have, right? So mm -hmm. I'm sure you remember uh, the definition for variance, right? Uh, no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Please. It, it's the average of the squared deviations of the raw scores around the mean. Oh, yeah, that. Of course. Right. And that, I swear to gosh, um, the conceptual formula shows you how to do that because you just... You add up the numbers and divide by n to get the mean. And then in turn, you take each individual number in your data set, find the difference between that and the mean, square that difference, add those up, take the average, and that's the variance. And that's the variance. Right. Nice. And it's, it's transparent, um, and it's obvious why it is that doing that thing has to produce the output. Right? Right. Of course, that takes a lot of steps. Yep. All right. Uh, after they've learned to use the conceptual formula and practiced it a lot, this is one thing that I, this is my other thing. We did a lot of exercises in class and I made up little data sets that illustrated it in obvious ways and showed fun things. And um, I'd quiz the students every class period. And um, because I wanted it to be a skill, right? I wanted it to be a skill, a practice that they had where. You know, similarly to cooking, if you tell somebody to chop up an onion, you don't have to stop and consult a thing. You just go ahead and do it because you know how to do it. Right. And then um, after they were solid with the uh, conceptual formula, then we'd move on to the computational formula, which is a in all of those procedures, there are algebraic simplifications that reduce the number of steps by about two-thirds. Mm. But they're, they're completely opaque unless you are a pretty fantastically skilled uh, mathematician already, right? You can't really see why taking the sum of the squares and sure, the square of exactly. the sums and all that. Right, right. And my experience in graduate school and in teaching was that people are going to forget stuff yeah. if they don't understand it because exactly. they learn to practice the technique and then, you know, honestly, just like um, folks who vigorously learn the conjugation tables for German doesn't do much for their conversational ability. Right. And so then years later, it's almost as if they never studied the thing at all. And that was, that was my idea for the transaction of learning and teaching was that I wanted folks to come out actually with a skill that they were going to retain across time rather than, and honestly, that's a big feature of the Suzuki method is that learning by ear, we could, some of us, could take a couple of months to learn a complicated piece, mm -hmm. right? Which meant that we would play it over and over. And, you know, one of the really cool things, when I was in graduate school, I wasn't playing with a regular group, but I'd whip out my violin every week or two, and I could play almost any of the things that I'd learned up through high school oh. by memory. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of people put that down 
the idea that learning something by rote is somehow a diminishment of the accomplishment of playing it. But it also struck me as being something that was completely worthwhile because, you know, I can I can pick up sheet music that I haven't played for 20 years. Let's go with, let's maybe go with, holy smokes, let's go with 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> I can pick up sheet music from that and look at it, and then by having learned to play it before, I can uh, do a pretty creditable job with it. That's amazing. It's kind of like... Something becoming something you know rather than something you have to remember. Correct. And, yeah. Or, or you know. Now that said, there are obvious there's obvious value to learning to sight read and learning to do it competently. Which um, yeah, of course. Over time, uh, that's been uh, I think brought into the teachers that use the Suzuki method quite a bit. I'm kids yep. start reading music earlier and practice more scales and things like that. So it's a, you know. Little of this, little of that. Exactly right, and 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 also match it to the student. Student. Oh, absolutely. We, we need to move on, and I want to talk. I want to touch on um, the September concert. It's called September Serenade, CVRO concert, and it's at Oddfellows Park. It's free. Bring a blanket or a chair, and perhaps a picnic. Um, there'll be popcorn there, and if it's cold, hot chocolate. If it's if it's hot, there'll be some lemonade, and um, so. Uh, we're playing this next song that we're playing. We'll play part of is is a song is a piece that you're going to start with that that the concert's going to start with. Right. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about that. Overture from Candide. <laughs> no, was William Tell. Oh, the William Tell Overture. Yes, oh, okay. Well, yeah. This this is a one of those age Rorschach test questions because most of the people our age hear the William Tell Overture and what do they think of? The blah, 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 uh, some TV show, The Lone Ranger. There it yeah, is. Yeah, that's the that's the was the theme music from The Lone Ranger. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of fun. Um, yeah, it's a it's again like the overture from Candide or the uh, medley that we played to open here. It's a, a rousing, fun piece that people know, and it, uh, it gets you excited. Is this something you have to rehearse a lot for, or do you usually pick pieces that people in the orchestra already you've already known, already played in the past? How, how do you prepare for something like this? You know, we. You know, and I have to always give credit to Paul because he's sort of mastered this over the last 45 years. Because he started the orchestra, I think, in uh, 1979. Wow. And has maintained it ever since. And bringing together uh, 50, 60 people with schedules uh, and lives and COVID and car payments and insurance and all that sort of stuff, it's it's an artful dance. Yeah, you know, it's no every year in the council we discuss. Well, should we have eight rehearsals? You know, because a lot of people would prefer to have more rehearsals. Mm-hmm. I certainly would. Um, but the reality is that uh, it's hard to do that. It's hard to get that together. And we try to play four concerts a year, and that's it. Ends up that uh, Paul has kind of titrated out the proper amount of practice time. So, He's figured it out. So for these fall concerts, which we started to do a couple of years ago when we came back from COVID, um, we have a couple, just only a couple of rehearsals. Wow. So the repertoire is fairly easy, fairly straightforward. We go for, well, we're going to play Victory at Sea, I think, uh, Valdres March. We play uh, Tango Lullaby, Russian Sailor's Dance. We've played some of these before, which is mm-hmm. useful. 
and over the rainbow because it's you know the idea is to to do a light summery friendly fun yeah that thing sounds outside. like a great lineup i'm going to mention one thing here and that's um the concert technically is free but what we moved to a few years ago is a free will offering right it used to be that we would print tickets and sell them and that was that was a pain. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we tried selling them through the uh, guild office, right? And you know, it, it. Well, a few years ago, and again, it's it's kind of a it was a zeitgeist sort of a thing. We just thought, let's try suggesting a, an admission price, which is usually fifteen bucks for adults and f- five or ten bucks for kids or seniors. When uh, and now, you know, we've kicked around. Actually, we've had a family rate a lot of the time, which was 25 bucks for all you can handle. Right. Um, nice. So it's 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 not free in a technical sense, but it's it's open to uh, a contribution. That, and, we, and we certainly hope that everybody that comes to the concert does that if they can. Right. And, but there's no need to stay away if you can't. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. And part of the thing with the William Till Overture, which this is, um, we're just going to play just a snippet of it, uh, the by that Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. And we don't have a recording of the CVRO playing this because um, it costs money to make recordings. And we would love, CVRO would love to make a recording. And so if you're listening to this and this is something you would like to sponsor, please email me at pauline at northfieldartsguild.org because it would be a fabulous thing to get in the can, a recording of, if, if it's just audio, that's all right, but it would be great to do video too. So if you if you have a itch to do something like that, let let me know. Um, and so let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of the William Tell Overture by Rossini, played by the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. <clears throat> All right, so this is Musician Talk, and I'm your host, Pauline Jennings. You just heard the William Tell Overture. This piece will be a feature at the CVRO concert on CVRO concert on September 15th. Um, today's guest is violinist Clark Onisorg, and he plays with CVRO. And we're going to move right on to best gig, worst gig. What you got for me there, Clark? All right. Well, <clears throat> just like everybody can play an instrument, all gigs are good gigs, eventually. Nice. But our big, I suppose, our worst gig, in some ways, which we used to perform the Nutcracker every year at the holiday season. Mm-hmm. First week of December, which, you know, in your titular role now uh, with the Guild, you probably are aware that the first week of December is an absolute uh, smoke show uh, <laughs> with regard to other ongoing events in town here right right we've got winter walk we've got the st olaf christmas concert we've got uh northfield choir concerts um a lot of competition a lot of stuff 
and we love to do the Nutcracker. Over time, we've had three or four different really cool people as the narrator, which is fantastic. Um, and we've wow. done that at the middle school here and other places. But one year, we did it up in uh, Lakeville, and we didn't really have adequate promotion and... Uh, we're Uh-oh. still selling tickets through the, you know, <laughs> pre-registration. So, you know, it was one of those concerts where we had more people in the orchestra than in the audience, and um, <laughs> which was kind of funny. Yeah. Best concert, it's it's impossible to pick because uh, well, it's like people used to say about the Grateful Dead. Um, that is the best concert you had was your last one. Nice. And, um, you know, I've Paul has rounded up fabulous soloists, some of them local, uh, and we've done the Messiah several times, and mm. um, both here in town and then down at the cathedral in Faribault, and those have been very nice concerts. Uh, I would say that probably my overall favorite, we did um, Greatest Hits from Carmen with uh, uh, a touring group from the outreach musical outreach department of the minnesota opera company oh wow they were doing a fundraiser at the sheldon theater in um red wing that sounds fabulous they bergen baker i'm going to mention her name because i can remember it um was fantastic she wrangled and and other people too obviously i just don't remember their names sorry but she wrangled two choirs in in red wing an adult choir a youth choir she got singers from shattuck and then they brought down their own fancy soloists uh, from oh, the opera company. fabulous. Oh, it was great. Because oh. everybody loves Carmen and everybody yeah. knows those songs. Yeah. And, um, wow. You know, one of the things we try to do is we try to have a mix of, uh, say, that's approachable, that is familiar music. And then Paul, being an educator who can't quit, always uh, – he likes to play and program things that are – learning experiences in musical sense for the orchestra. He's uh-huh. still teaching us. You know, it's not it's not just a show-up <laughs> gig. And that was a big feature of the Jay and Molly show because most of us naturally were not that hip to playing Western swing. Sure. Right? And, uh, you know, the Copeland Melody medley, we had all played at some point typically. But, the you know, playing Bob Wills' style in an orchestra is not uh, – that, that, was a, that was a real learning experience yeah, for us, yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and educating the audience sometimes, too. Sure. Well, we had – that was cool also. That was a great concert because we had audience people coming from northern Minnesota because Jay Unger's a big deal. Wow, yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, thank you for those <laughs> for those gigs. And f- as far as a worst gig, that's not too bad. An, a small audience, I think we have all been there. All mm-hmm. of us been there. So um, to wrap up, we have this show on September 7th. 15th, 15th, as I was saying, at 7 o'clock, and it's a free show, and it's at Oddfellows Park in Northfield, Minnesota. It's CVRO playing um, a a list of really great songs for you, and um, Clark, my guest, Clark Clark Onisorg, my guest today, is playing violin in that group. And what else do you have coming up? Oh, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I wanted to sneak in a mention, speaking of local talent. Um... Paul, and I suspect there was contribution from uh, Andrea, the departing uh, director of the Guild. Executive director, yeah. Wrote a nice grant that has funded uh, the composition of a harp solo piece for Eleanor Nemisto, who's Paul's wife of 
many years and mm. plays with the Rochester Symphony Orchestra and teaches harp, and it's kind of a musical big shot. And it's kind of a celebration of their 50th wedding anniversary. I didn't know that and, part. Um, That's cool. Did I mention that uh, Tim, Tim Marr from St. Olaf and the, and the middle school has uh, done the composition? So, you know, when you talk about recording something in a, that would be in something a nice to record. setting, that would be one that would really be worthwhile. And that goes up in November. That will be in November, yep. yeah. So we uh, we will be doing a little more rehearsal for that one. Right. Um, so watch the Guild website. Watch... Uh, do you have something for CVR, someplace people can go for CVRO music and uh, gigs other than the Guild? No. Okay, so the Northfield Arts Guild website is the place to find the information if you want to take check out a CVRO concert. You know, I'm going to thank one more local person. Okay. Quickly, I can see yeah. you glancing. Yeah. And that is uh, uh, Rob at By All Means Graphics. Yeah. Uh, generously, you know, he helps us with our promotional stuff, does a lot of printing, but importantly, he allows us to to put our music out there so that people can come in and pick up their music. Oh, nice. And, yes. Um, it's just the kind of cool, friendly contribution that you get from all sorts of people in town here. Isn't that you know? fabulous? Yeah. We've had nice support from, you know, financial support from the bank, and I should have mentioned, I guess, that Ferndale Market sponsored the Jay and Molly show, but... Um, so that's something that happens. We get a lot of community buy-in. That's great, Clark. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Appreciate our conversation and um, getting to know you a little bit better. Take care. Well, thanks for having me. As a locally owned business here in our community, A big thanks to Clark for sharing his musical journey and some fascinating discussion with us today. Thanks always to the wonderful Wendy Nordquist and to you, dear listener, for tuning into Musician Talk on The One, KYMN. Have a fabulous day.